0: What's the problem with landing on the ground? When did that fall out of fashion?
1: Because you can't roll out of bed and have yourself an espresso and then stroll out onto your glass, you know, shrouded balcony and hop in your flying car and leave. You're, you're, you can't be Batman. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Wide range of topics on today's show. First, we're going to talk about the FAA stopping flights on the West Coast here in the U.S. um, because of a North Korean missile launch. Pretty crazy. Uh, We'll talk about Brussels, how one airline there has been having to fly empty routes, empty aircraft to keep slots at airports. Uh, Growing problems with uh, air traffic we'll talk about cutter airways finally filing a lawsuit against Airbus over the Lightning protection and the skin issues that have been ongoing Uh, We'll talk about a a propeller hitting a bird and breaking off through the fuselage which is terrifying and some more uh, MCAS uh, Design we'll have a little conversation about that uh, read the Boeing 737 max in our EVTOL segment We'll talk about Joby. They've got a second aircraft now to double their flight testing capacity a bellwether half scale prototype we'll Talk with the implications of that and lastly we'll chat a little bit about EVTOL stocks and what we should expect from them uh in the near future so alan first thing here the faa grounded flights at west coast airports here in the u.s over what they suspected was a north korean missile test um, obviously it's been heavily in the in the news cycle recently um You haven't really heard of this before. This seems like a pretty new kind of crazy thing, right?
0: I I haven't heard of airplanes being grounded because the North Koreans are firing a missile in in, North Korea, which is a long ways away from California. But there must be some concern about North Korea firing a missile into the United States. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a system to ground airplanes. So the, the missile launch, which is monitored by the military all the time, uh, they, they must detect it. They must have a hotline to the FAA and to the the ground controllers to, to everybody just to hold tight and not go anywhere until the all clear signal is given, which is what happened. And and isn't it a little weird, Dan, because why would we be concerned about a missile launch in North Korea getting to California unless there is some sort of increased tensions about a missile landing in California or anti— missile technology being launched from california up to the sky it, it, what, what are the rationales for sh- shutting down those flights temporarily
1: yeah it's a scary thought and i was always kind of under the assumption that north korean missiles were like made of cardboard or something um and had just graffiti on them with sharpies but that's probably not the case and i know everyone's developing their technology and it's obviously very scary if north korea is starting to actively test again but yeah, it's definitely concerning. I wonder what people who are potentially on those flights are thinking. Like, were we going to get were we going to get shot down?
0: Right. Yeah, and, and Japan cannot be happy with that. And they've been very upset because those those missiles tend to go over Japanese airspace, and uh, the the Japanese are concerned about something stupid happening. Right, and it's a bargaining tool. How it has been a bargaining tool for the North Koreans to try to get the U.S. and a number of other countries to the to the bargaining table. Uh, but the last couple of months has been unless I'm missing something, I don't think so. it's been relatively quiet on the North Korean front. It doesn't seem the the Biden administration is making any overtures and has basically cut North Korea off and like the Obama administration did and uh, maybe that's causing increased tensions. It's going to be hard to say, but if we're shutting down airline flights at least temporarily on the on the west Coast, something serious is happening right now.
1: Yeah, and I guess the speculation is that they might have a Mach 5, you know, a hypersonic uh, missile, which I guess is harder for missile defense systems to detect and, I guess, destroy versus a ballistic missile.
0: Yeah, sure. Shorten the time frame to respond. Absolutely, it would.
1: Yeah, that's that's scary. So I'm sure we'll hear more about it in the coming in the coming days and weeks. Hopefully uh, good news and we'll get back to some, I guess, better, better days of diplomacy. But North Korea has obviously always been North Korea. So moving on, um, still more air traffic issues. Uh, Brussels Airlines is operating 3,000 flights with almost zero passengers on them uh, just to avoid losing slots at some airports. Alan, have you heard of this before? There's just a lot of unprecedented things in the world at this time.
0: Yeah, well, and, and most uh, airline... Um terminals that they have a requirement. You've got to use the slot or you're going to lose a slot. And they pay money to, to take those slots. And in Europe, they have an agency that oversees those. And I, I think pre-COVID, you had to be at the slot 80% of the time. And if you didn't show up 80% of the time, then they're going to give your slot to somebody else. And then they lowered it. Uh, I think uh, for a while, they kind of stopped that practice and then brought it to 50%. So you had to show up 50% of the time now to keep the slots. And in some because of this new wave of COVID that's happening, some of those flights, they don't want to run. But the airlines don't want to run because they're not full enough to run them. They like to consolidate into fewer airplane flights uh, for a variety of reasons, obviously cost and, and two environmental reasons. They like to not fly all those routes all the time. Uh, and they're going to be penalized. And so now uh, Brussels Airline, which is part of Lufthansa system, is having to fly those flights that they would otherwise cancel or, or consolidate into to fewer flights with in that same time span and that's not smart you know i i don't think you blame an airline for not showing up all the time right now because it's so hard to tell week to week what your passenger loading is going to be uh, and even if you have booked people <laughs> you know the place booked people are, are not showing up to the airports because they're concerned about covid at the moment and uh, you know, i i don't know how you penalize an airline for that, I could see them penalizing and like they had operational problems and they couldn't get the airplanes to fly and get up where they're supposed to be on time. But this is not an airline problem. This is a pandemic endemic that you would think that the regulators would see and be able to, you know, be a little more flexible with. It's very odd, I, I think. Thing to do.
1: And Brussels Airlines has clarified that they're not empty flights, but they're just not they're not making them any money. So they're in the, in the, in the red. Um, and I'm sure they've done all the math as a company to say, you know, what, what should we do here? Should we just not show up kind of just like if, you know, you know, with, uh, rent in COVID times, like, should we just stop paying the rent and just abandon ship? Should we just, you know, go under or do we want to keep paying the rent even though we're not making any money for a while? It seems like that same kind of, kind of deal.
0: Yeah. Right. You, you, you may be, you may want to give up some of those gates uh just to keep the cash flow coming.
1: Yeah, I'm sure they'll do that if they figure out that makes the most financial sense. So moving on, uh Qatar Airways has moved to sue Airbus because of their eighth 350 uh, jet damage. That's been an ongoing thing that we've covered here. Um And the lawsuit, I think, is for $600 million. Is that right, Alan?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a lot of cash. $600 million. Is, yeah, at least in regular people's terms is a lot of money.
1: Is this just going to get them to the settlement table? I assume this probably would not go to trial, or is this going to be something that would be fought tooth and nail? What do you think?
0: I think this is going to trial. I think this may be decided by a a judge, weirdly enough, because uh, the airline and Airbus have been going back and forth for a a little over a year, and it's been very high levels of animosity uh, on the airline side. I think Airbus is been fairly quiet and hasn't put anything into the press publicly stated, right? I'm sure they're talking to reporters, uh, but it is very odd uh, how far this has gotten. And I, I think the, the the little news piece I saw, which may be indicative of why they're in court right now, is they were going to paint an older A350. that was about three or maybe it was about five years old, and you're going to put the uh, World Cup paint job on it and when when you repaint a composite airplane with a metallic mesh like the a350 has you got to be careful because you can damage that mesh and what the airline is saying is there's about a thousand places on that airplane that they were going to repaint there's a thousand places where that metal foil has been damaged so they got to do a thousand repairs and if I know that I'm going to have to repaint all those airplanes I have at some point, no matter what, because you do, that's going to be massively expensive because those repairs, and it's going to make the airplanes look ugly too, or can, if it's not done right, and it's going to add a lot of weight to the airplanes, not huge, but enough that it would matter. And it, it, the expense would explode. So you, as an airline, you see this unexpected routine expense that you're going to have to Pay to keep these airplanes flying, and now <laughs> Airbus I think is is reacting correctly and saying that it's not a safety issue. It doesn't appear to be a safety issue, but the uh, like the cutter regulator has pulled the, the the type certificate on 21 aircraft, basically grounded 21 of the A350s and prevented them from flying because of this mesh issue. And so, not only are you know, you're losing money on those airplanes because they're not flying. It's got to be a couple million dollars a day, but there's usually some contractual things uh, about airplanes which will allow you to recover if there's some sort of inherent defect that they can go recover. And that's what Cutters appears to be doing is going right after the the contract and saying, "Look, guys, we, we have a contract that says you have to pay us if these airplanes don't do X, Y, Z, and we're going to take it to court and." That's where they're at right now. And, Dan, don't you see this as sort of a bigger problem? Not not so much for Airbus, but for the industry. Because the, the 787, it really isn't much different. They're going to have the same issue, I think.
1: Well, and isn't that going to become a big issue for Airbus, especially if Cutter wins this lawsuit or gets a settlement? I mean, is everyone else going to sue after that? You imagine that they would.
0: I think they'll be, especially if they find a court that's agreeable to the argument. And I, they're in the United Kingdom for this for this uh, judgment. But yeah, uh, I think everybody else lines up behind them and, and creates, creates a quote-unquote class action type of event and away they go. And it could be expensive and you hope that Airbus, I hope, you know, one of the things about deciding airplane uh, contracts or airplane performance in the courtroom is rarely do you think the court understands all that's going on and uh, Airbus is making a really good contention that th- there's not a, it's not a safety issue. If it's not a safety issue, then it can be dealt with and repaired. And and rightly so. I think just Cutter disagrees vehemently with that approach.
1: Well, should Airbus pay for the repairs? Or should Cutter pay for the repairs? Like who sh- is, Isn't that sort of the thing?
0: And I had uh, talked to Tim Heffer at, the, at Reuters about this uh, last summer. And my first thought was, and I haven't seen this talked about in the press, but my first gut feeling was that uh, the airline had sent the airplane to be pa- repainted somewhere. And when it was getting repainted, it got damaged. Not, and Airbus doesn't want to pay for the airlines damaging the airplane, which makes sense.
1: Speaking of airline damage, a crazy set of pictures uh, from a JS-41 jet stream that hit a large bird upon landing uh in south africa and alan it looks like this was a natural composite uh propeller right so it's got what a wood core instead of a foam core is that, is that right what's the construction of this
0: Looks like it has a wood core to it it's just, just from the remnants of the propeller that are left
1: yeah so it i guess hit a pretty large bird and reading through some of the comments there's some really savvy commenters on this article from av herald that Um, I guess they're typically rated for like a four pound bird. That's the test that, right. But obviously exceeding that, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but pieces broke off, went into the fuselage. Luckily, no one was sitting in that row. So there were no injuries, but good grief. What a bunch of photos this is. And what, that could have just been a horrific, horrific thing. And no one was injured, which is remarkable.
0: Uh, it could damage aircraft systems. Obviously it could really kill passengers and that makes you wonder uh, the, the when I saw that and I and I said man the core of that blade is made out of wood I, that seems unusual to me in today's world and maybe I'm just haven't been that closely tied to propellers I've seen a lot of I've tested a lot of propellers in the lightning lab over the years I don't remember coming across one that had a wood core in it uh, but you got to wonder if if the wood being part of the structural element is one of the reasons it broke off the way that it did. Uh, And, and, you know, it's outside of the typical certification requirements, right? I don't know what size bird this thing hit, but it was big uh, to snap that blade off. And you're lucky they didn't snap more of them off. Uh, And and there wasn't a flock of these birds either, thank goodness, because they were taking the aircraft down. So this is just one of those, put it in your hip pocket. I did did some uh, looking online about, different kinds of propellers and there are some that are made out of wood uh at least the one i found was over in europe and uh i don't think in the united states we make a lot of wood propellers except on on these evtols that are going on that's the only place i've seen it recently or or, or older like a piper cub or something of that sort yeah so huh strange
1: yeah i'm trying to think of what a four greater than four pound bird looks like because a duck is probably not four pounds right they're probably what two three pounds birds are pretty light creatures. Obviously, they, they fly. So, I'm guessing goose, goose size?
0: Yeah. I mean, goose to ostrich somewhere in between <laughs> In between those two. And emu? Yeah. I mean, it's got to be something fairly good sized.
1: To- I mean, a chicken, you, you buy a chicken at the grocery store, like a roaster, they're what, like two, three pounds for the bulk of the body. And of course, those are not natural birds. They have a huge breast, right? Um, so, if they're not pumped full of those hormones, they're... You're talking probably a little bigger than a chicken to get to four pounds total with the head and all the feathers and all that stuff. So maybe yeah, maybe it would be have to be a goose, something like that.
0: Have to be something goose size. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. But even then, you kind of wonder would it snap the blade off? I don't, I don't, I think in those tests that the blades will tolerate a lot more typically. Uh, so when I saw this, I thought, man, it must have hit something like an ostrich. Like, it really had to hit something hard to snap it off the way that it did. Cause it kind of broke it off near the hub. It's like it just snapped off the tip. It broke it off way down uh, towards the hub of the propeller.
1: Ostrich would have to have a pretty mighty jump since they're flightless birds. Aren't they? They're flightless, aren't they? Yeah, ostriches and emus and emus are flightless. But, well, South Africa, I'm sure, has some exotic uh, bird species that we're not aware of here in the U.S. But, yeah, that's some terrifying photos. So, glad no one was injured there. So, last in this segment, let's talk about um, statement from uh, Peter Lemmy over on Twitter, just talking about the MCAS. Um, Alan, fill us in on this tweet and and Mr. Lemmy. He uh, seems like he's uh, a well known industry industry uh, guy.
0: So Peter worked for Boeing for a long time and has, if anybody follows him on Twitter uh, or even on his uh, web blog, there. He's very knowledgeable and understands sort of the system architecture to the way Boeing has designed airplanes over time. And I, I, I'm not even sure where he digs up some of the information in which he'll publish because it, uh, he must have access to, to manuals and things that I obviously don't have access to. But he he understands how systems are designed. And so it's very refreshing to actually cross somebody that's not because people that work at Boeing now don't get to say a lot. Uh, that understands how the systems on a 737 were likely designed or how they are designed and how they're intended to function and the evolution, which is the most important part here, the evolution of the 737 and how the flight control system has changed and evolved over time. That airplane is 50 years old, roughly. Uh, and, and obviously the, the the flight controls have changed uh, according to the times. And what Peter is saying is uh, – and. Uh, is trying to highlight, there's a lot of focus on the AOA sensor. Very true. But what Peter's saying is the whole system is a single line system, which means there's no there's no dual redundancy in any part of the MCAS system for the 737, because the criticality wasn't high enough to force it to be a, a, basically a two-channel or, or two independent streams uh, of control there. And the, the the highlight that what Peter is trying to to talk to is there were a couple of changes made to that to the max version of the 737 where on the control yoke on pilot and co-pilot used to be you could pull back on the stick and there was a switch underneath the floor and that switch would disconnect the autopilot disconnect in this case it would have disconnected the mcas system so if the pilot pulls back hard enough and that switch senses that force; it would disconnect MCAS. So all the all the pilot would have to do, if they were panic in a panic situation, like or there was some sort of weird runaway situation, which was what happened, uh, the pilot would just pull back, and it would have disconnected the system. So Boeing made an architecture change on a switch uh, at the bottom of each of the control columns that would have stopped stop that reaction. And Peter also mentions that they were relying upon the pilots to make a correct decision to retrim the aircraft and do a couple other things, which the pilots in these two crashes didn't appear to do. So I think what Peter is highlighting is that uh, the way aircraft get designed, it doesn't matter where it is. It could be in China, it could be in France, it could be in the United States. It doesn't really make any difference. The, the way that aircraft designers think through and solve design problems is from a system safety standpoint. And these uh, changes that were made to the aircraft have maybe larger impacts than the engineers would have assumed while they're making them. So, the, the, you know, one of the questions is why did Boeing pull out that switch at the control yoke? Good question. Yeah, I, I don't know if anybody's even asked that. Out in the public, I'm may, probably internally between the FAA and Boeing, I may be asking that question. Uh, but that's how we solve these problems, right? We, we kind of get them out in the open and figure out like what the hell's going on and figure out why do, why do, why do we do that? Like, what, what, what was the purpose of a removal of a switch, a simple removal of a switch, and how did that cascade into other problems? And we need to figure out if we do that in the future, one minor change has bigger problems. We need to be able to see those forecast those problems so we don't make those uh, quote-unquote simple changes that have catastrophic effects. It's complicated. And I'm glad Peter's out there doing it because I I just really haven't seen it anywhere else. Uh, So when when he posts things, when he puts things on Twitter, pay attention because he's thought about them and he's very knowledgeable.
1: All right, moving on to our EVTOL segment today. Let's first talk about bellwether uh, so this UK company, they have just put out a very Blade Runner-esque, uh, half scale EVTOL. And Alan, I, my big question to you is, I mean, the looks of this thing are crazy. It's very flat, sleek, kind of looks like a Manta Ray or Stingray or, um, you know, look very much like the car kind of prototype that we've seen in movies. Um, it's beautiful, but what is, what do you learn from testing a half scale aircraft of any kind. Does it really translate very well? I mean... It
0: can. I mean, obviously, the aerodynamics are not the same because your air speeds and things like rental numbers and uh, some of those things don't scale like that. But uh, if you're having... If there's if there are significant aerodynamic issues, you should be able to see it in half scale. And that's why you would do it. Uh, and Another reason is it's just less expensive to build because you can... Because it's not a production article, you can do cut a lot of corners to create the create the flying vehicle uh, quickly, and it doesn't have all the bells and whistles. Obviously, it won't. But the the core systems will be there. Particularly, the flight control systems will be there. And this is a good time to figure out: Is it going to fly? Does it have any weird um, aerodynamic uh, upsets that they need to address with the flight control computer? How? Again, it really, you know, like all those little safety things you don't think about because the FAA and the ASA and all the certification authorities uh, put you through a gauntlet, right? I mean, you don't want the airplane to, whatever kind of form it takes, they don't want it crashing, right? They're trying to protect the occupants. And you need to f- figure those things out. And I remember years ago, well, years long, not long ago, but I mean, in my uh, engineering lifetime, yeah, we make smaller scale two-thirds scale versions of aircraft uh to go check out performance and then try to scale it but you know the the thing about this aircraft dan is like we've seen a lot of others um it's it's kind of a helicopter-ish thing and as you get into forward flight there's a lot of effects that happen and what i'm guessing is they're trying to make sure that those when you're moving forward you don't have any weird aerodynamics that would stall some of the rotating blades that are in it, which would make it very difficult to control. So, uh, yeah, it's just like, well, you, you fly a lot of drones. Isn't it very similar to that? Uh, the, the smaller drone, they make them smaller. Then they take those same sort of concepts and make them larger over time. They don't start with the largest, most expensive version of this new great idea. It's very similar to that, isn't it?
1: I think so. And that makes sense. My other question to you is they have a, a conceptual little design of, you know, this sort of tongue, like you have a skyscraper. Skyscraper has this tongue that sticks out from the 80th floor, and that little pad is where you park your flying car. I just can't see any scenario in the future where that comes to exist. To exist, I mean, you couldn't retrofit a building like that. I I can't see any way the structural design would allow for that. But B, say they started building skyscrapers in 40 years with like maybe on like the you know with 10 floors to go, they just have like a Saturn's ring sort of thing where it's this huge outdoor space. And you could just land a plane there. You could picnic on there, whatever. I mean, is that really a realistic thing? Or are we always just going to use the top of buildings? It's going to
0: be the top of buildings. And even the top of buildings has gotten shut down quite a bit. I know that this, all the EV2 companies uh, that are in California are, are using LA as an example. But, you know, if it wasn't that long ago in New York where a helicopter landed on the top of a building and fell off the side of it, right? Kind of crash land on top of it, fell down onto the street. Right. It's not ideal. So they, they outlawed it. And I can't imagine Los Angeles will be much different when if they have that sort of scenario happen. And hopefully it doesn't. But um, what's the problem with landing on the ground? When did that fall out of fashion?
1: Because you can't roll out of bed and have yourself an espresso and then stroll out onto your glass, you know, shrouded balcony and hop in your flying car and leave. You're, you're, you can't be Batman. If, if you park on the ground, Bat, although, although Batman did live in a cave. So I retract that statement. Strike that from the record. Um, well, moving on, Joby has a second uh, prototype now that they've built to do flight testing with. They said this one's going to the Air Force. Um, Alan, what's obviously twice the capacity for testing is great. Um, do they need a third? Or what does this second one really open up for Joby?
0: Cash. Uh, it, it, it allows them to... Uh, work with the Air Force and get paid some money uh, to do some flight tests and to let the Air Force evaluate the technology from a military standpoint, which they're getting paid to go do. So it does help bring in some money. And uh, in terms of visibility of the program, it makes the, the program a lot more visible, which is in relation to stock price and investors and all that. Uh, yeah, the if... Any EV tall company that's in the process of trying to get certified needs to have flight test vehicles. Typically, four, five, six somewhere in there. Five is the normal number. Six happens once in a while if you're trying to accelerate the project. Uh, and Joby's got number two. Like they need three more. Typically, let's go. Right, and they're going to have to get going uh, to 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 get to the finish line in which they set their own finish line. And uh, this, it, it, every, I think, there's a Outside the aerospace industry, people assume you build one airplane, you show that it flies, and then you're good, right? That's not what happens. It's, it's typically five aircraft that get built, and they have different things inside of them. Because you think of all the, the multiple variations that have to happen and, and all the different things you need to check. You're going to need four or five flying aircraft to go do that. The last one is just usually aircraft five has all the interiors and bells and whistles and all the stuff in it. And that's the one they, they do for sort of function and reliability checks. But aircraft one through four are just as valuable to the flight test program. You just got to get them built. And you got to get them flying because you're burning cash so fast. That's the only way you can stop the bleeding is to get in the flight test. So good for Joe. But you're getting the second one going. There's hopefully a couple more behind it. Well,
1: and that kind of transitions us into our last uh topic here which is evtol stocks so obviously there's a bunch on the market now there's uh even brayer is going public joby is public um who else alan
0: archers public right
1: archers public
0: um vertical
1: is beta public
0: Beta. yeah i don't know about beta that's a good question
1: i'm not sure about beta um looks like if not they're probably a candidate for coming up soon um but the big question here is and you know like I believe in Joby. They seem like they're doing a great job. They're clearly the front runner, right? You look at their stock, it's been like six, $7 down from its IPO price of, you know, it started at like 10 or 12. Um, and you say, that's, that's not a lot of money. Why don't I buy a hundred shares of Joby or a thousand shares of Joby and just see what happens. Um, but my question to you is with the slight, the flight certification process taking so long, What's the advantage to buying a stock today or in a year or like what are these companies going to do when they're not really taking any cash? So obviously you said Joby's going to get paid by the Air Force uh, with their Agility Prime program. But most of these companies don't have a product they're selling yet. So there's no income coming in. So what what should a person know about the stock market in general with some of these aircraft companies?
0: I would say if you're the individual investor, you have to be careful here. Uh, just because historically the aircraft companies haven't made a lot of uh, revenue and they're still a, a good solid two years away from having really significant income come in if the projections are right. Uh, so your money's going to sit there for a while. Uh, and I think that's the, that's the risk that's the risk you're going to take is right if you get a little bit closer to uh, certification then yeah it, it, and you'll see the market as as the aircraft company gets any of them gets close to certification you see the stock price tend to ramp up there even Boeing Airbus have the same thing like it, what, when they get close within about six months, you see the stock price start to creep up because then people are anticipating that the revenue is going to start coming in right you're going to participate in the revenue part of it. That's what happens. It's just the life cycle. It's it's you're not making iPhones here. You're making something really complicated, and it takes several years to get that done, and about a half a billion dollars to get it done. That's the trouble. That's really the trouble. And if, if from a institutional investor, Dan, uh, you it's it's risky, right? I think a lot of these uh, Toyota invested a lot of money into to Joby. That would probably be the exception, but I, w- I would say that there's a good bit of venture capital. And venture capital uh, needs to be successful one out of 10 times, right? That, that seems to be the marker that if I find one Google and the rest are, you know, <laughs> selling dog food or something, then, yeah, I just need one to, to hit. It's, I need one to hit to pay for all the other nine. And in aviation, it hasn't been that way historically. Um, it's been more of a sort of a passion uh, investment like i like airplanes this is cool i want to advance the world i want to have a cleaner future whatever that angle is tends to be where the investors hearts are the eclipse right eclipse was a, a passion play by uh, people that were affiliated with microsoft some of the earliest employees at microsoft were heavily invested in that and it was like a, f- a friend's network of investors didn't work out right uh Yeah. And I think you just got to be careful. Got to be really careful with any investment, right? Not just airplanes, any investment got to be careful with.
1: Yeah. And it'd be interesting to see what, here's my one thing with some of like the tech stocks where um, you could see a company that maybe they start to really struggle, right? But there's a public tech stock. They could easily be acquired, right? As they start to get cheap, they start to get in trouble. They could just get acquired and now you didn't lose all your money. You're just stock that used to be company X is now company Y, right? Um, Good little backup sort of fail safe there uh, from, you know, losing all your money if they announce bankruptcy. Um, You could see that for maybe a couple players here. Like, I don't know if you could see if like Joby started to struggle, maybe Boeing buys them, Airbus buys them or an Amazon even buys them says, hey, we still believe in this. We're going to give you a lot of cash. You're just coming with us now. but, but as you said, a lot of these companies will eventually go bankrupt and no, one, they just won't, won't be able to make money and they won't be able to get a buyer and it'll be too, too far in debt and too far from a product. Whereas that's a lot like, like not quite the same thing with like a tech stock. Cause again, like, oh, let's just, we'll take your technology and we'll fix it or we'll just, you know, whatever. So it seems like there's maybe even a little more risk there than for some of the other stocks on the market. Obviously there's a million stocks you could buy, but <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, seems like less of an option, yeah, opportunity for acquisition.
0: And in the way that aircraft companies have have stopped over time is they just close doors and all the employees. There will be no more checks. And if I'm a, if I'm a competing aircraft company, typically, they just. Don't are not interested in the whatever remains except for the employees. They'll start putting up billboards in the town and trying to attract the engineers and uh, the sort of the key people that come over to their company. But other than that, they don't buy any of the tooling. There's nothing they can use there. They don't care about the building, and so it just kind of gets uh, left for you know another industry to take over. And and they sell all the tooling. And the, yeah, you're right, Dan. It's not like uh, Facebook's acquiring Instagram. It's it's not that for sure. It's much more industrial than that.
1: Because lots of companies like that. And I mean, Instagram, I don't know if they're a good example or not. I guess they probably are. But lots of those companies like Instagram was not making money. They had a really big user base, but they are still like well underwater. They only had like what, 14 employees when they were acquired. Um, but you know, lots of companies like, like Uber was still very unprofitable. I'm not sure if they're profitable now, but you know, you can have these, co- these companies that are growing really fast that have a big user base, customer base, good technology, good people, but are unprofitable. Those are always good candidates where they're just like, we keep needing more cash infusions. We're finally open to being acquired um, rather than continue to struggle. And again, I think you could see that with some of these top EVTOLs that have good IP and good people and are pretty close. Like the ones that are are public are probably good candidates, but many of the others, yeah, they just, if they're too far down the line, people are like, eh, I don't know if we need you. You know, we could could do without, but either way, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting question to ponder why should we invest in a stock now when they're so far away from selling a product and having revenue that's what i wonder because yeah it, it piques my interest too like could i be an investor in one of these companies one day yeah i might um but again that's my big question is why now why not six months from now or why not a year from now and that's a it's an interesting question
0: the way that the the investor market the, the individual investor has looked at the aircraft uh, marketplaces they keep watch on the certification performance keep track of where they are on the certification schedule. And when that six months we got a we got a fifty more flights to go do, sort of number pops up, that's when you'll see the inflow of cash because they're pretty close. So there's, there's a lot less risk in that kind of investment instead of investing now.
1: Well that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen or watch. Uh, share the show with a friend. Leave us a review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Always helps the show grow. We'll see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at WeatherGuardAero.com. That's weatherguard o.com